If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 1 Peter chapter 5? 1 Peter chapter 5. We are going to pick up and continue the message from last week about shepherding the flock. 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. The scripture says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble." Last week we began looking into this passage and we discovered Peter laying out some instructions. He draws attention to elders who are among the saints who are suffering and who will endure suffering and he gives the elders some specific instructions. In looking at this text, we noticed three things, one and a half of which we were able to discuss last week. We began by noting the ownership of the flock. Now, I'm not going to go greatly in depth because those of you who were here last week, you heard this expounded upon, but we established the reality that the church belongs to God. In fact, that's how things are addressed there in verse 2. The church is called the flock of God. This is not your church. It's not my church. It is the church of God. This church belongs to God. This is the body of Christ. He is the head of the body. We belong to him. We have been purchased at a great price. The blood of Jesus has purchased our salvation through his shed blood, through that price. We are called to be part of the family of God, the assembly of saints, the church. We belong to God. From ownership of the flock, we moved into the mainstay of what Peter is addressing, and that is the oversight of the flock. The next thing we came to in this passage was oversight of this flock which belongs to God. And we discussed how the church has been entrusted to pastors, those called and gifted by God to lead his flock. Verse 1 speaks to the elders. Verse 3 points out they're elders of those entrusted to them. These are the elders, the bishops, the overseers, the pastors. God has called specific men in whom he has entrusted the care of his church. And then we began to see the expectations laid out for these men. The expectation God lists for the pastors, those who would lead his flock. The first thing we noticed, the first expectation listed was that to shepherd the flock. A pastor is to shepherd the flock. We saw that there in verse 2. We understood that a shepherd's primary concern in leading the flock is to see that they are 
fed and secure. That's the shepherd's job, to see that the flock is fed and secure. We examined the scriptures and discovered that the primary obligation that Jesus expressed in shepherding the church is to edify the flock by feeding them on the truths of God's word. That's the primary obligation of your pastor, to feed you on the truths of God's word, to keep you secure spiritually in that way. The second expectation we found was that of overseeing the flock. The pastor is to oversee the flock. Now, to oversee, as listed there in verse 2, we determined meant to look diligently upon. What is being called for here is the assignment of pastors to do the job of looking diligently upon the members of the flock to assess their spiritual condition and ascertain their spiritual need. The pastor must look diligently upon you, assess your spiritual condition, determine your spiritual need. Therefore, he knows how to shepherd you. The third expectation that we came across was that expectation of serving willingly. The pastor is to serve willingly the flock to which he has been assigned. In verse 2, we saw that pastors serve not by compulsion, but willingly. Now, this speaks to the motivation of the pastor's heart, the motivation of the heart in which there's a reverent love for Christ that motivates his shepherding and oversight. He does what he does out of a love for Jesus. That is the motivation of the heart driving what is happening. The fourth expectation we mentioned was to serve as God wills. Now, you'll remember that I drew attention that some of our versions, like the New King James, King James, has a different kind of interpretation of the Greek, but the more accurate Greek speaks of, in verse 2 there, all of this happening as God would have. In other words, according to God's will. Shepherding the flock of God has to be done according to God's will. Not the pastor's desire, not the pastor's agenda, not the pastor's goal, but the desires of God according to God's will. We laid all that out last week. And we established that just as God has entrusted pastors to lead and care for the church, he has entrusted all of us to lead and care for others spiritually in some realm. And so you'll remember we talked about spiritual leaders in a home or parents or ministry workers or even students and the obligations they had in each of these things as well. Yes, this text here lays out expectations for the pastor as a model for the rest of us in our given areas of spiritual leadership, wherever that may be. So today, we want to pick back up our study and look at the last four expectations and one last point. Peter makes about the flock. So, let us jump in to today's message. Let me draw your attention back to verse 2 and 3. These expectations are found there. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples of the flock. Here's the fifth expectation listed for those who would shepherd the flock. The expectation God places upon pastors. It is to shun dishonest gain. To shun dishonest gain. The reality is a pastor cannot do his job while trying to acquire dishonest gain. Verse 2 speaks to that. 
and says, Pastor, serve not for dishonest gain. Now, we really kind of need to delve into that because that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. That phrase, dishonest gain, refers to shamefully using the position of pastor as a means to gain wealth. So when Peter says a pastor should not serve for dishonest gain, he's saying do not use your position, don't leverage your position, don't leverage your influence to acquire possessions. Now, this is not referring, this is not saying that a pastor cannot acquire wealth. It is not saying that pastors should not be paid. It's not saying pastors should not have possessions. It is simply saying a pastor cannot leverage his position to influence people to give him things, to acquire wealth. That's dishonest gain. If I had to just word this in common English, dishonest gain among pastors, I would say it's something like this. It refers to utilizing the position of pastor as an entrepreneur to gain material possessions without regard to the spiritual well-being of the flock. It's to make a business out of your position to acquire stuff and forget the job of shepherding and overseeing. That's really what's spoken of here. Those who would call themselves pastors while hoodwinking the church for their own personal gain. That's not a true pastor. Those who would misuse or even steal finances given by the flock. Those are not true pastors. Those who would use their position behind the pulpit to promote themselves, their products, their stuff, to feed their bank account. That's dishonest gain. That's the reference here. Now, let me make a distinction before some of you freak out. You're like, man, I like Pastor so-and-so. He's on TV and radio and I buy his books. You go and check this out and see if this isn't the case. There's a lot of different preachers on TV and on the radio who write books, who sell Bible studies, and so on and so on. The ones who have a true heart for their church, check them out because here's what you'll find. They pastor a church and they have a totally separate entity, a totally separate ministry that produces their videos, their radio, their books, their Bible studies. It's not through their church. They pastor a church and have an extra ministry. The church isn't their means to leverage their position. A separate ministry is their entity. You'll find that among the most popular. If you listen to uh, uh, John MacArthur or uh, David Jeremiah, uh, Tony Evans, people like that, that's what you're going to find about them. They have a heart for shepherding their church, but God has gifted them with the ability to write and produce materials for the church at large, and it's a separate entity. They're not leveraging their position to build themselves up for dishonest gain. In fact, one of those men have said, ministry done for the sake of money and personal gain is to prostitute the call of God. That's what a preacher is who uses his pulpit to leverage his position to acquire stuff. A man who has prostituted his call. 2 Peter chapter 2 says, judgment awaits such men. 
there's a distinction here. You see, to use the position given you to persuade, to influence, to apply leverage, to acquire things is wrong. But to utilize your position to equip saints by tending the flock and then for the church to compensate you, that's perfectly good and biblical, I might add. In fact, the Bible clearly teaches that pastors should be compensated by a church. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 says, Let the elders who rule over you be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And I could give you more and more references where the Bible speaks specifically about a pastor supported by his church. When Peter speaks about dishonest gain, he's not talking about a pastor who's being paid by the church. He's talking about a pastor who's abusing his position to get stuff from the church. In fact, even in our local association, I can introduce you to pastors who faithfully shepherd their churches. Their churches tend to their needs, and I know a couple of them who drive BMWs and live in the houses bigger than you've ever seen, but they pastor their church sincerely. I know other pastors who are just as sincere in shepherding their flocks, and it's all they can do to get their car to start in the morning, and they live so modestly. And neither one of them wrong. They're both pastoring where God called them, doing what God called them to do, and they're being compensated by their churches. But I can point you to other pastors who have leveraged their position for dishonest gain. I knew a pastor one time who kept the oldest pair of shoes you have ever seen. Now, he didn't wear them very often, but he kept an old, worn-out, raggedy pair of black shoes. And every now and then, he would wear them. You know what he'd tell you? Because I asked him. I said, what are you, don't you have any, what's, he said, look, when it's time for a new pair of shoes, I just wear these around the church a while. Sure enough, one of my members would say, hey, I've got to buy you a pair of shoes. That's dishonest game. That's dishonest game. It's the pastor who stands in the pulpit and says, yeah, boy, I'm getting kind of stressed out. I hadn't been able to play golf in a while because, well, you know, those course fees and a bucket of balls, and he'll wait for the bucket of balls and the gift card to appear on his desk. That's dishonest game. I know guys who do that. Peter says, do not use your position. Don't leverage your position for dishonest gain, for your own personal agenda, your own personal desires. So that's the fifth expectation for a pastor. But let's not leave it at your pastor, because if you do, I'm the only one having to deal with this. Let's bring it on down to a personal level. Let's start like we did last week with the men, the spiritual leaders of the home. As spiritual leader in the home, men, do you leverage your position simply to get the things you want? Do you own that position of leadership and use it as a tool to acquire your desires or get your agenda across in the family? That's dishonest gain. Parents, do you use the position of authority that God has given you in leading your family, leading your children? Are you leveraging that authority to lead your children to fulfill your own desires? To be who you want them to be? 
to engage in activities and accomplish things that bring you satisfaction and feed your own pride, that's dishonest gain. What about our ministry leaders? Do you serve because you have a position in the church? And, well, that brings you gratification of having a position, gratification of having power. You have some prominence. It feeds the ego. And so you do what you do to feed that ego and maintain that position. That's dishonest gain. Students, let's think about you for a minute. Do you maintain friendships because of what you can get out of those friendships? Do you use your friendships and leverage your friendship to get something out of it? That's dishonest gain. Because your friendship should be a means whereby you minister the gospel of Christ. Not get all you can get from someone else. There's a sixth expectation listed here. And that is to serve eagerly. To serve eagerly. Note what the end of verse 2 says, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. To serve eagerly. Pastors are to serve the flock eagerly. That is with a willingness to be fully committed fully vested, totally committed to tending the church regardless of any rewards that come. See, it's the exact opposite of dishonest gain. It is the pastor who will step into the pulpit and preach no matter what needs to be preached, as long as it's the truth of God, regardless of the reward that comes. It's the pastor who will work among the flock and tend the flock even if there is no reward that comes. It is the pastor who eagerly seeks to be fully committed to the ministry to which God has called. See, that's the true pastor. The true pastor is willing to serve the church regardless of any reward. Financial gain may not come. Financial compensation may not be there. But he serves fully and completely, completely, totally dedicated to his calling to the flock. That's what it means to serve eagerly. To tend the flock simply because you have received this high calling from God through Christ Jesus. And so you're fully committed fully vested to do what God has called you to do, even if rewards don't come. You see, the false pastor seeks dishonest gain. The true pastor says, I need no gain. Let me serve and tend the sheep. To serve eagerly. These pastors have a heart that is focused not on what the church can give them, but what they can give to the church by shepherding the flock. How can God use me among the flock? Not what will God give me from the flock. See, that's to be fully vested and committed to serve eagerly. And can I tell you that this is really the aspect of shepherding that keeps pastors going? This is the aspect of shepherding a flock that keeps a pastor going, well, quite honestly, when the flock gets difficult or when the task at hand is unpleasant or when the rewards are lacking 
The high calling of God placed upon the man keeps him going as he fully is committed to serving the church he's been placed at. That's the expectation of a pastor. That's what he's supposed to do. To serve eagerly in that capacity. To be fully vested regardless of the outcomes. Let me ask you how you are in your own personal life. In your areas of service to the kingdom. Do you serve eagerly? Men, do you serve eagerly, fully committed to that role of spiritual leader, even when your wife is contentious and your kids don't listen? The Bible says a man who has a contentious wife is better off just go sit on the roof all day. But you're called to be the spiritual leader. Are you fully vested in doing that even when your wife's not on board? When your kids are cantankerous? Do you recognize the high calling, the privilege that God has given you to be a spiritual leader and fully vest yourself in that even when the task is hard or things are unpleasant? Parents, I wonder, do you eagerly seek to fully be vested in nurturing your children, fulfilling your God-given duty there, even when your kids are obnoxious and disrespectful, even when you'd like to lock them in a closet. I'm not, I'm not encouraging that. I'm just saying when you would like to. Are you still fully vested in saying, I must nurture this blessed little one? I must develop him or her and grow him or her spiritually. Parents, when your kids hurt you, are you still fully committed to that obligation God has given you to be their spiritual leader? Those of you who serve in aspects of ministry, do you serve with this eager willingness even when you get hurt? Because if you work in ministry, you will get hurt. You will face discouragement. Things will fall apart around you at times. But do you stay fully committed and fully vested? Do you serve eagerly? I often wonder if our students eagerly serve the Lord Jesus. Are you all fully committed to Jesus? Do you really seek to honor him? Even when honoring him means you may not get to be in certain groups at school. Or when really honoring him means you still have to respect your parents even when they don't seem to respect you or don't even care sometimes. Do you have this heart that says, I'll eagerly serve. I'll be fully committed to you, Jesus, even when life is unfair and painful. That's the expectation. There's a seventh expectation in this text. We move on to verse 3 to find it. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. Lording over someone. Pastors are to avoid bullying. Pastor's not supposed to be a bully. Bully. 
Pastors should never execute control over the church by domineering the church. The idea expressed is to maintain control as a dictator. Pastors never called to be a dictator. Yes, the Lord vests great authority in the pastor. God has given authority to pastors. Authority to lead the flock, but never to be bullies in exercising their authority. In fact, the pastor who wants to domineer his parishioners, put his thumb on top of them all the time, is doing the exact opposite of what Jesus said a pastor should do. See, you don't maintain authority within the church by dominating the church. You maintain authority by serving the church. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20. His disciples were all the time into it about who's the biggest and the best and the greatest and the most powerful and has the most authority and on and on and on. And listen to what he says to them. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be the first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus upended this whole thing. He told his disciples, you want to be the leader and have the authority? Look at the Gentiles. They act like dictators in their authority, but not so with you. If I give you authority, that means I've given you the greater call to serve those around you. You use your authority to serve. See, that's what leadership in the kingdom is about. Leadership in the kingdom of Jesus is a call to become a servant You don't lord your authority over people. You use your authority to serve them. That's how it's supposed to work. God has vested in a pastor a certain degree of authority, of leadership, so that he might serve those in the flock. And as you serve the flock, they come under your authority. The same same works, guys, in your home, by the way. In your position as spiritual leader of the home, God has vested in you authority. And you exercise that authority by serving your wife and children. And as you serve them in the love of Christ, they'll come under your authority. Parents, God has given you a great deal of authority over your kids. But it's not to provoke them to wrath. It's not to exercise your authority so that anger and hatred and a feeling of belittlement is fostered so that you can love them and nurture them. Those of you who are ministry leaders, God's calling in you, vests in you a certain amount of authority within the church, but it's authority given you so that you can serve the body Minister his love, not domineer others or just get your way. 
And believe it or not, even our students wield authority. Listen, all of you students, you have a certain degree of authority. You have some degree of influence over people. You have influence over siblings, over friends, sometimes even over your parents. You have a certain degree of authority over people. And you're to use that authority in serving them and helping them experience the love of Christ, to see Christ's likeness, to grow in the character of Christ. You play that role in their lives. You kids, how much have you ever thought about ministering to your parents so that they can grow in their Christ-likeness because of who you are? You can do that. You have a certain degree of authority in that. There's one final expectation listed here. Once again, verse 3. Nor being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Examples. The pastor is called to be an example to the flock. Rather than leading by domineering, you serve and set the example. That's the call. Shepherds are called to serve as examples of Christ's likeness to the flock. In exercising the duties of shepherding and overseeing and all that has been listed to this point, it's all done while living out a Christ-like example. See, pastors are expected to establish and maintain this pattern of holiness that the church can look to as an example. Now, I have to be very quick to point out, no man is perfect. And every pastor makes mistakes. And I wouldn't dare say I've figured it all out. It even makes me hesitant to mention this expectation because I feel so inadequate in it. But even in a non-perfect state, the expectations for pastors is to live an exemplary life that can be emulated by others. It's what Paul did time and again to the churches he ministered to, where he would teach them and live among them. He would conduct his life to show his spiritual integrity and his holiness in this crazy world. The church could witness it, and they could see spiritual integrity. They could see holiness to the point that he could say to them, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. What a bold statement Paul made to the churches. He said, look, I shared the gospel with you. I've been there teaching you God's word. I've established you in doctrine. I've been there shepherding you. But here's what you should do. Just imitate me because, well, I imitate Christ. What a bold statement. That is the high standard that pastors strive to achieve, to live a life that is so in tune with Christ's likeness that parishioners can imitate them and they'll be imitating Christ. That's a high calling. That's a tough bill. It's a lofty goal that we strive for. But it's one that applies to every single one of us. Every single one of us in our lives should strive for the holiness of Christ to the point that people could look at us and if they imitated us, they would imitate Jesus. That's the reality, men. 
Men, have you established a pattern of spiritual integrity and holiness that your family can look to and imitate? Can your kids look at you, emulate you, and walk in Christ-likeness and holiness? Parents, if I interviewed your kids, off the record, completely confidential, and ask them, hey, if you modeled your mom and dad, if you emulated your parents, would you be living in holiness? I wonder what they might say. Those of you who serve in ministry, let me tell you, you need to establish holiness so clearly that those involved in your ministries can look to you as an example. Every one of our students needs to be living in spiritual integrity and pursuit of holiness so that everyone around them can experience Christ's likeness through them. I wonder, students, if your friends emulated you and your attitudes, would they be emulating Jesus? We're just set an example. Those are expectations listed here in regard to the pastor and the flock, but that apply to each of us. But Peter is going to sum it up with one final point. He spoke of ownership of the flock, this is God's church. Oversight of the flock that's vested in pastors. Now he speaks to the obligation of the flock. If the pastor is obligated to do these eight things, what's the obligation of the church in response? If God has stated expectations for pastors, what does he expect from the church? Well, you see them in verse 5. The first thing is this to submit to the leadership of the pastor. That's what God expects from the body, from the flock, from the church. Verse 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. A lot of people take that and, and, take that and say, well, it's talking to those young people in the church and how they better respect the old people in the church. Well, maybe, but put it in context with the chapter. Because when we study a verse, we put it in context. And what has Peter just been talking about? The church, pastoring the church, and now what the church does. The church responds in submission to the pastor. You see, it simply works like this. The pastor submits himself to the chief shepherd, mentioned there in verse 4, that's Jesus. The pastor submits himself to the chief shepherd's authority, and then in kind, the church submits to the authority vested in the pastor. It is simply a hierarchy of rank. That's all it is. In fact, here in verse 5, the words submit and submissive are forms of the word used in military rank. 
when Peter says to submit and be submissive, he's using the terminology used in the military where you have multiple people holding different positions and each position has a rank and you line up in rank under position. That's all he's saying. That just like the military has people in a position and a position carries with it a certain degree of authority and people line up under certain positions, that's how the church works. The church is called to simply willingly recognize the organizational plan God has established. God has established a system of rank whereby Christ is the head of the church. He's the chief shepherd. He has under shepherds. We call them pastors who follow under his authority. And then the flock follows under the under shepherd who's following the chief shepherd. It's just a system of rank and file. That is all it is. You just willingly line up under authority. That's all that it means there. And quite honestly, this is nothing new if you've been doing this study in 1 Peter with us. This is not the first time Peter has mentioned this. And he's used the same terminology every time. To willingly line up under authority. Earlier in the epistle, Peter called for Christians to submit to employers. He also called for Christians to submit to civil authorities. He called for submission in marriage. And now he carries that exact same thought over into the church where parishioners submit under the authority vested in pastors. Now, I'll point out that doesn't mean you always agree. You don't always like everything. It's not a rubber stamp just to condone everything. It is simply saying, I want to abide under God's authority, so I'll abide under the authority he has established. That is all it means. It is simply submitting to God by willingly abiding by the subscription he has placed upon the church. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. He gives you a very good reason why you submit to the authority vested in the shepherd. Because a shepherd looks out after your soul. Not that the shepherd saves your soul, he looks out for the well-being of your soul. That is your spiritual health. When submission occurs, the shepherd can feed you and look diligently into your lives, ascertain spiritual condition, prescribe spiritual need, and take correct action, and you allow it to happen. It promotes spiritual growth. When you yield to the authority vested in the pastor, it promotes the spiritual growth of the body. Think about it this way. In my backyard, I have a pear tree. And it grows a lot of pears. Now, the truth is, we stay so busy, we we really don't ever get out there to get the pears. They're usually off the tree, laying on the ground, rotten, before we ever have time to do anything. But you know, as long as that pear is on the tree and it's abiding under the authority of the branch it's on, it continues to grow. It's still a green fruit growing, but when that fruit gets ripe, when it gets full in itself, it falls off the tree. It lays on the ground and it rots. There's no more growth. In fact, it's the exact opposite of growth. It rots. It decays. My friend, 
those people within the church who in and of themselves just know too much or maybe they're just too proud or whatever their excuse might be, but they're just not going to submit to the authority vested in the pastor. They're a ripe piece of fruit and all that's left for them to do is fall off and begin to rot. Now here's the problem. In my backyard, the pear lays there and rot, and it just rots by itself. But in the church, when you fall off the tree and you begin to rot, you infect all those around you with rot. And your bad attitude becomes their bad attitude, and your lack of submission becomes their lack of submission. When you cease to grow spiritually, all that's left is to rot. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your soul. Now, let me just add this caveat before I move on. The call for submission to the pastor is in light of all the expectation God has for the pastor. So if a pastor is immoral or unbiblical, if the pastor is not doctrinally sound, if the pastor is leveraging things dishonestly in the church, You shouldn't just idly sit by and submit to that. Submission to the pastor is in light of him fulfilling his expectations to God. There's a second expectation listed here of the church. Look at the end, well, the middle of verse 5. It says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God expects the church to be characterized by humility. As God's people, as a body of believers, as His church, we are to be characterized by humility. Humility characterized the Lord Jesus. You can read about that in Philippians chapter 2. Here we find that the flock is to be clothed, to be covered with humility. Now, humility and submission go hand in hand. They're linked together. It's like they're handcuffed together. Submission doesn't happen without humility, and humility bleeds to submission. They go hand in hand. The phrase, to be clothed with humility here, refers to having a lowliness of mind whereby we willingly seek the benefit of others. When I practice humility, I assume a lowliness of mind. That doesn't mean to be stupid. It means I don't think of myself more than I ought to, more highly than I ought to. I'm not puffed up and proud. I humble myself to consider the benefit of others. What's good for you instead of what's good for me? What will help you in your spiritual growth instead of what I want to see done? What would enhance your experience rather than holding on to what I feel like I want to see done? I consider what's best for someone else. How can I benefit others? That's this humility spoken of here. It's reflected in this willingness to serve in the lowliest positions. To put yourself out to serve someone else. And really, that's kind of what's required if you're going to submit to the authority of a pastor. Sometimes you just have to set aside, boy, here's what I really want. But I'll fall under the leadership God has established. To put yourself out for the benefit of others. 
It's not hard to do, by the way. One time, Christy asked Maggie about standing up here. Y'all know Maggie stands by me every Sunday. Sometimes she helps back in the back, but if she's not back there, she stands on the front right by me. And Christy asked her about that, and do you enjoy that? She said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't like being in front of everybody. I don't like standing at the front. But I sure don't want Daddy to stand by himself. That is humility, thinking of someone else ahead of your own needs. See how easy it is? So easy to clothe ourselves in humility, to take on this lowliness of mind so that we can esteem the needs of others ahead of ourselves. What must we do to enhance the spiritual well-being of others? Am I willing to set myself aside for the benefit of others? You can see how that's tied to submission within the church because if you're not willing to do that, you're not going to submit to anyone's authority. And Peter here gives a great reason why we should clothe ourselves with humility. Look at what he says. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Oh man, what a good reason to exercise humility. Because God resists the proud. Peter's quoting Proverbs 3.34 there. This isn't some new thing Peter's come up with. This has been the truth of God from creation. His hand is against the self-absorbed, self-willed, prideful person. God stands against them. His hand is against them. I, don't, I just do not ever want to be in that position. I don't want to ever put myself in the position where God is resisting me, opposing me. But the Scripture says that through my own pride, I can place myself in that very position. That's kind of a scary place to be. And you're like, well, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. God's my heavenly father and he loves me and he would, he would never oppose me. Says the person who's never had kids. Because when you really love your kids, there are times you oppose them. You resist them. You stand against them. You work contrary to their desires. You don't bless them in fact, you bring chastisement and discipline upon them to help them get to the place they need to be. Oh yes, our lovingly heavenly Father, He will stand against us and resist us to help us get to where we need to be. And when I'm self-absorbed in my own pride, it places me in a spot where I am in opposition to my Father. But on the flip side of that, it says He gives grace. To the humble. When I'm not puffed up in my own pride, when I don't think more highly of myself than I ought, when I esteem others ahead of myself and I consider their spiritual well being, the Bible says, in that place, the grace of God abounds and I'm blessed by my Heavenly Father. Some of you 
maybe in this place in your spiritual walk where you just kind of say, you know what? I just don't sense God's movement anymore. I just don't sense his presence anymore. I just don't know what's happening. I, I just, it seems like he's just foreign. It seems like he's way off there. I just feel separated. Can I ask you today to do a pride check? Have you become self-absorbed in your own pride that maybe God is resisting you? Have you become so self-absorbed in your own pride you've indulged sin and thought you could get away with it? Have you become self-absorbed and you've decided to seek your own agendas in life rather than yielding to the will of God? Is God resisting you? Not that you're lost, but that you're simply out of his will. And as a heavenly parent who loves you, he is resisting you, chastising you even. Maybe you're here and you're like, listen, I've never felt close to God. I've never had communion with God. I don't know anything about knowing God. Well, it's very likely you don't know God because you've never come to this place where you've called out to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and the rescue of your soul. See, the Bible says those who have never come to repentance in Jesus are alienated from God. They are foreigners and strangers to God. In fact, the Bible uses the word enemies of God. If you're here today and you have never come to this place of repentance or you've called out to Jesus through faith, accepting him as your Savior, you're the enemy of God. You're separated from him. But you don't have to be. Because that's why Jesus came to begin with. He went to the cross bearing our sins in his own body. He stepped into our place and took our punishment for us. He offered himself as the payment to purchase our forgiveness. He was put in a tomb and rose again. He's victorious over sin and death so that every one of us who would call out to him saying, Jesus, I repent of my sins. I turn to you and I believe you died for me, that you rose again. And I'm asking you to come into my life, bring your forgiveness. I give you my life. Anyone who would do that is made a child of God. Can know God every day, interact with God and have the assurance of eternal life now and forever. Is that what you need to do today? Maybe you're here and you say, look, I'm a born-again believer. I know I am. And I've been trying to do what I could do and what I should do. But I wonder, are you emulating Christ so that others could emulate you? Are you really setting the example for others? Are you leveraging your life to influence things to get what you want? Are you abiding in God's will? Are you really patterning yourself after God's expectations? Or did you just get saved one day and now you're living life? That's not life. I want to challenge you today to examine yourself and see if you're abiding in the expectations God has for your life so that you can be who he's calling you to be and you can live a life that impacts the lives of others.